You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, my name is Rena Weissman, and I am a board member with Variety Children's Charity of Northern California. Anyhow, without further ado, I'm going to turn the evening over to our esteemed moderator, Terry Bisson. Thank you. I'll take it. Cool. Thanks for coming out. Um, we have a a group of heavy hitters tonight. We've got uh, some very interesting and important science fiction and fantasy writers. So I'm going to not take up a lot of your time. I'm going to um, just begin. Our drill is we have three readers. We take a break. Everybody buys a drink to support children. And then we, um, we have a Q&A and a bit of a schmooze and a discussion among our authors and between our authors and our audience. Our first reader tonight uh, is needs no introduction, so I'll but I'll do a little bit of one. Um, <laughs> he happens to be a, a close colleague and a good friend. He's one of the original dread lords of cyberpunk. He's the author of the Ware series, uh, and um, let's see, uh, numerous nonfiction books on math and science. And um, right now he has uh, just completed an autobiography called Nested Scrolls. And if you don't know who Rudy Rucker is, you means you don't really know science fiction, which means you probably went to a pretty good college. But you can, <laughs> this is your chance to learn about Rudy Rucker. Thanks, Terry. It's, uh, it's nice to be here at SFNSF. I always enjoy coming here. I appreciate you all organizing this thing. And it's an honor to be here with Jay Lake, the king of the Zeppelins, and <laughs> K.W. Jeter, who's uh, Dr. Adder, has scarred me for life with its <laughs> filth and perversion. So uh, I thought some of you are beginning writers, so I thought I would read some passages from here that have to do with me writing the first few novels that I wrote. Uh, and this is from Nested Scrolls, uh, out from Tor Books. The real start of my writing career happened in 1976, after Sylvia and I went to see the Rolling Stones play once more. This concert was outdoors at a football stadium in Buffalo, New York. Back then, the Stones seemed radical and of the moment. We drove to the concert with Brooks, a young friend of ours who was an apprentice printer, old school metal and ink printing. I was once again awed to see Mick and Keith on stage, right there, in person, two leaders I felt willing to follow in that overhyped year of the United States Bicentennial, two public figures in whom I could believe. The day after the concert, I sat down at my red selectric typewriter and started writing my first beatnik science fiction novel, Space Time Donuts. I composed the book in the style of my father telling a story after a meal. That is, I made it up as I went along. The early sections of Spacetime Donuts were loosely based on my experiences in graduate school, and the hero's love interest was modeled on my wife, Sylvia. My story was guided by a particular science speculation I wanted to present. If you keep shrinking long enough, you'll eventually end up back where you started, 
in the same place and the same size. The notion of finding planets within our atoms is, of course, something of a cliché. It's the kind of thing that screenwriters have characters talk about in order to indicate that the characters are stoned. <laughs> but I was talking about finding our own planet down there. This is a notion that I dubbed circular scale. Over the years, I've found that every possible idea can be found in some pre-existing piece of science fiction. The corpus of SF is our own homegrown library of Babel. But at the time, I imagined I was the first to think of circular scale. In one of her journal notes, Susan Sontag says that in order to be a writer, you need to be a nut and a moron. A nut to be obsessed enough with an idea to spend months writing a book about it, and a moron to think other people will want to read the book. <laughs> I had these personality traits in place from the start. <laughs> Space-time donuts included another element, a cadre of characters able to plug their minds directly into their society's big computer. In some ways, this prefigures William Gibson's epical cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, where console cowboys jack their brains into the planetary computer net that Gibson dubbed cyberspace. In proto-cyberpunk fashion, my characters in space-time donuts take drugs, have sex, listen to rock and roll, and are enemies of the establishment. I was initially unable to sell space-time donuts. I had no real idea of where to begin, but I noticed that Bantam Books was publishing a series of SF novels labeled as Frederick Pohl Selections. I'd always loved Pohl's writing, most especially the novels Wolfbane and the Space Merchants that he'd co-authored with Cyril Kornbluth. So I sent him my manuscript in care of Bantam Books. He actually looked at the book and sent back a friendly rejection letter saying something like, this is a fun read, but it's not science fiction. I wasn't entirely discouraged. My hope was that older writers like Pohl simply didn't realize how drastically SF was about to change. A young guy named Barry Kaplan ran a bookstore called Sundance Books on the main street of Geneseo, New York, where I was living. Barry was a rabid fan of the Grateful Dead. He had long blonde hair down to his ass, and he encouraged people to call him Sundance. <laughs> Even so, he was every inch a businessman and very competent at running his store. He had a good collection of countercultural literature and science fiction. One day I found a new SF magazine called Unearth for sale on his shelves. It turned out that Unearth was printing only stories by previously unpublished SF authors, which seemed like a perfect opportunity for me. At first I was going to sell them a short story called Enlightenment Rabies, but then after some correspondence it turned out that they would be willing to run my novel Spacetime Donuts in three installments, the first of which appeared in the summer of 1978. I think they even paid me a couple of hundred bucks. It was an incredible rush to see my name on the lurid cover of a digest-sized pulp magazine. I imagined I was often running as a real science fiction writer. But Unearth went out of business after only publishing two of the three installments, <laughs> and I still couldn't sell the novel as a book. I was beginning to grasp how long a row a writer has to hoe. <laughs> okay, now I'll jump ahead. I, I lost the job at Geneseo, and I found a, I got a grant to come to a place called the Mathematics Institute at the University of Heidelberg in, in Germany. The head of the Mathematics Institute didn't particularly care what I did, which was great. He'd helped me line up the grant, and his group was being reimbursed, and there was nothing more to worry about. In a way, I could do no wrong. He gave me a nice quiet office in the Institute's modern building with no teaching duties at all. 
I thought about a famous mathematical problem called Cantor's Continuum Problem for a few months, reading most of Cantor's philosophical writings in German. It made me feel like a real scholar to be studying these obscure essays, which were not available in English. Cantor was interested in three kinds of infinity, the mathematical, the physical, and the theological. Given that mathematical set theory has developed such a precise system for talking about infinities, I'd already been thinking it would be nice if set theory had some physical applications. It very often takes decades or even centuries until a mathematical theory finds a use in physics. For instance, it was 60 years before Riemann's 1852 theory of curved space appeared in Einstein's 1916 general theory of relativity. It was intriguing that Cantor had talked about physical infinities from the far, very start, back in the 1880s. I also found it interesting that Cantor didn't shy away from discussing the relationship between infinity and God. For the non-mathematician, this seems natural, but academics are, not without reason, squeamish about dragging religion into scientific discussions. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to look for connections between theology and set theory. For instance, a theologian might say God is greater than anything than we conceive. Rather than dismissing this as sheer bombast, a mathematician of a certain stripe might reformulate the claim as the class of all sets is bigger than any set we can define. I set up a seminar at the Mathematics Institute and gave some lectures along these lines. The mathematical logic faculty enjoyed my discussions, even though their real interests lay in more technical work. As the fall of 1978 wore on, I finally came to accept that I was never going to make any big technical breakthrough in extending Kurt Gödel's work to solve Cantor's questions about different levels of infinity. So by the start of 1979, I decided to make better use of my time in Heidelberg and write more science fiction. <laughs> I started by writing science fiction stories, some of them inspired by paradoxical notions from the philosophy of science. I began having some luck selling my stories to SF magazines. Not all of my tales were hard SF. One was about Franz Kafka being reborn in a new body every year. I was reading Kafka's journals at the time, loving him for being such a desperately romantic fanatic. I wrote seven short stories, and then I wrote White Light, a science fiction novel about infinity. Space-Time Donuts had been a fun book, but really it was a work of apprenticeship. With White Light, I got serious about being a novelist. I began writing the book in longhand one weekend in January 1979 when I was alone with the kids. My wife was visiting her dying grandmother in Budapest. I called my novel White Light in memory of my memorable acid trip back at Rutgers. And I gave it a subtitle lifted from a paper by Kurt Kirtle, What is Cantor's Continuum Problem? I'd been corresponding with my college friend Greg Gibson about a new approach to writing science fiction. He crystallized the basic idea very clearly. The cool thing to do would be to write a science fiction novel, but write it about your real life. The main character of White Light was a math professor closely modeled on me, and the setting was very much like Geneseo, New York. As I mentioned earlier, the practice of writing science fiction about real life is what I began calling transrealism later in the early 1980s. In White Light, my life in Geneseo was the real part, and the trans part was that my character in the novel leaves his body and journeys to a land where Cantor's infinities are as common as rocks and plants. White Light was also influenced by the Donald Duck and Zap comics that I loved so well. 
One chapter features Donald and his nephews, and in another chapter, objects start talking, as they sometimes do in our Chrome comic strips. I also used the papers that I'd been reading, by Cantor that I'd been reading, and I included the man himself as a character. Over the years, I've often worked by alternating between writing science fiction and writing popular science. So it was fitting that I began working on an early draft of Infinity in the Mind, my nonfiction book about infinity, at the same time that I was writing White Light. Each endeavor was feeding the other. I got into a very pleasant and exalted mental state during this period of time. I remember having a magical dream in which I was scrambling up the ridge of a mountain. The stone underfoot was slippery pieces of shale, and among the stones I was finding wonderful polyhedral crystals the size of chestnuts or hedgehogs. Even within the dream, I knew that these treasures represented my wonderful new ideas. I finished the manuscript for White Light in the summer of 1979 when I was 33. It would take me a few years later to publish my nonfiction tome. I tried sending White Light to the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. They charged me a couple of hundred bucks to have someone read my manuscript. The anonymous reader disliked the book, and Scott Meredith refused to submit it to any publishers. So then I decided to try selling the manuscript myself. I set off to Ace Books, getting their address from the title page of Ian Watson's Miracle Visitors, a wonderful book written on the same wavelength as White Light. While I was waiting for my book to work its way through the Ace slush pile, I went to my first World Science Fiction Convention in Brighton, England, August 1979, taking the train and ferry from Heidelberg. The atmosphere at mathematics conferences had always been rather frosty. There weren't enough jobs to go around, and newcomers weren't particularly welcome. But the science fiction folks were like, the more the merrier. <laughs> I loved the vibe. What's that beeping? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's probably in that coat. I'll say. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Some well-dressed hippies from London got me high on hashish and introduced me to a hipster named Maxim Jakubowski. Maxim was editing a new line of books for the Virgin Record Company. His first book was going to be about the punk band The Sex Pistols, but he was looking for radical SF novels as well. I brought along a single Xerox of the White Light manuscript, and I handed it to Maxim on the spot. A few weeks later, he made me an offer to buy the British rights for the book. A month after that, in the fall of 1979, the editor Jim Bain at Ace made an offer for the U.S. rights. I felt like a plant pushing out from the soil into the sun and air. The word transreal that I came to apply to my novels was inspired by a blurb on the back of my copy of A Scanner Darkly, saying that Philip K. Dick had written a transcendental autobiography. A Scanner Darkly is a hilarious, sorrowful, transreal masterpiece. I got my copy at that SF convention in Brighton. The book was just out, and my new stoner friends had been talking about it, complaining that it was too anti-drug. <laughs> they didn't seem to understand <laughs> that the book was funny. <laughs> After that convention, waiting for my trip back to London and then back to Germany, I was reading Scanner and I was laughing so hard that I left my suitcase on the platform, which I suddenly realized as the train started to move. I jumped back out in the nick of time. Up until Scanner, I hadn't fully grasped how close Phil Dick's novels were to the kinds of books that I wanted to write. I particularly liked the language with a flat tire way that his characters talked in Scanner, 
And over the years, years, I'd begin to emulate his peculiarly Californian tone. And even more, I liked the sense that Phil was writing about real people. I too felt that the characters of my novels should be based on actual people. The characters should do more than woodenly move the plot along. They should be sarcastic, miss the point, change the subject, break the set, and do surprising things. I find it dull when novels have characters who are supposed to be normal people. My sense has always been that there actually aren't any normal people. Everyone I've met is weird at some level. It's liberating to have quirky, unpredictable characters instead of the impossibly good and bad paper dolls of mass culture. As I mentioned above while talking about white light, lifelike characters are the real part of trans real. Okay. Um, all right. So while I was in Heidelberg, my parents got divorced. I was really unhappy about it. What to do? I started work on another science fiction novel. When faced with life's intolerable realities, I tend to transmute them into literary art. In this case, I planned to write a transreal novel as before, but without using myself as a character. I sensed that not having a specific Rudy-inspired character would give the other characters more space to develop and to open up. One character, called Cobb Anderson, would be an old man modeled on my father in his current state. To some extent, I could project myself onto this character, too. For all our disagreements over the years, Pop and I never were all that different. Another factor in my writing about Pop was that I was in some sense trying to inoculate myself against ending up like him, besotted, afraid of death, and on the run from his family. The other character in my novel was a young guy called Stehi Mooney. After all these years, I wanted fully to develop a character based on my wild and wacky friend, Dennis Polk, a guy who used to turn up in Geneseo to visit his big brother, Lee, when I was, who was teaching there. What I liked about Dennis was that he seemed to have no internal censor. He always said exactly what he was thinking. He was relatively uneducated, but he had a fanciful mind and a hipster, motor mouth style of speech. In the opening scene, Cobb is sitting on a beach in Florida drinking sherry, and he's approached by his double. At first, I thought I was writing a time travel novel, but then I hit on the notion that Cobb's double should be a robot copy of him. To make this work, I developed the idea that it would, will become possible to extract a person's personality from their brain, and that it will then be possible to run the extracted human software on some fresh hardware. And why not have the hardware be a robot resembling the person's former body? Software. In 1979, this was a technical and little-known word. I would picked it up from an article in Scientific American. I decided to use it for the title of my book. I finished software near the end of our stay in Heidelberg in the summer of 1980, and I had no trouble selling it to Susan Allison, the pleasant and intelligent woman who had taken over from Jim Bain as the science fiction editor at Ace Books. So let's see. I think, is that 15 minutes I've been reading? Or maybe I'll stop <coughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'll just stop there. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.